taste of coconut milk are attributed to its high oil content, most of which is saturated fat. Coconut milk is a popular Southeast Asia, South Asia, Southern China, the Caribbean, and North of South America. Traditionally, coconut milk is acquired through the grating of the white inner flesh of a brown coconut and mixing the resulting substance with a small amount of water to suspend the fat present in the grated meat. The grating process itself can be carried out manually or with a more modern grating machine. Several grades of coconut milk exist from thick at 20 fat to thin at 5 to 7% fat. Thick milk is prepared by directly squeezing grated coconut meat through cheesecloth. squeezed coconut meat is then soaked in water and squeezed further to produce thin coconut milk. Thick milk is mainly used to make desserts as well as rich and dry sauces. Thin milk is used for soups and general cooking. 
this distinction is usually not made in Western nations, since fresh coconut milk is rare, and most consumers buy coconut milk in cans. Coconut water is the watery liquid that usually comes from the young, still immature, green coconut, although mature coconuts also have coconut water. The still jelly-like coconut meat is often added to coconut water to make a tropical drink. Coconut milk can be made at home by processing grated coconut with hot water or milk, which extracts the oil and aromatic compounds. It then has a fat content of 17 to 20 depending on the fat level of the coconut meat and the quantity of added water. When refrigerated and left to set, coconut cream will rise to the separate out from the milk to avoid this in commercial coconut milk an emulsifier and a stabilizer have to be used manufacturers of canned coconut milk typically combine thin and thick milk with the addition of water as a filler. Depending on the brand and age of the milk itself, sometimes separated and used in recipes that require coconut cream rather 
shaking the can prior to opening will even it out to a creamy thickness. Some brands sold in western countries add thickening agents and or emulsifiers to prevent the milk from separating inside the can since the separation tends to be misinterpreted as an indicator of spoilage by people unfamiliar with coconut milk. Once opened, cans of coconut milk must be refrigerated and are usually only good for a few days. If not, the milk can sour and spoil easily. Fresh coconut milk has a consistency and mildly sweet taste similar to that of cow's milk, and if properly prepared, should have little or no coconut odor. as a milk substitute in tea, coffee, or baking by vegans or people allergic to animal milk. It can also be mixed with fruit to make a yogurt substitute. Coconut milk is a common ingredient in many tropical cuisines, such as Burmese, Cambodian, Filipino, Malaysian, Singaporean, Sri Lankan, Thai, Vietnamese, and Southern Chinese, as well as Brazilian, Caribbean, and Pacific Islands cuisines. Coconut milk is an ingredient in some curries. Frozen coconut 
stages in which the coconut flavor is not competing with curries and other spicy dishes. Coconut milk is the base of many curry dishes of Indonesia, Malaysia, Sri Lanka, and Thailand. To make the curry sauce, the coconut milk is first cooked over fairly high heat to break down the milk and cream and allow the oil to separate. The curry paste is then added along with any other seasonings, meats, vegetables, or garnishes. Coconut rice is the example of popular rice cooked in coconut milk, commonly found around tropics from Southeast Asia to the Caribbean. Nasi Lamak is a popular Malaysian version of coconut rice, while the Indonesian version is called nasi uduk. In Indonesia, coconut milk and rice flour are the main ingredients for traditional sarabi pancakes. In Brazil, coconut milk is mostly used in the northeastern cuisine, generally with seafood stews and in desserts. In particular, several dishes from Bahia are known to use both coconut milk and palm oil. In Colombia and Panama, the grated flesh of coconut plus coconut milk extracted from it is fried with coconut water and sugar in its own oil. The concentrated residue is called titote, which incorporates little brown bits of dried coconut. Coconut rice made 
Dotay is brown in color and has a sweet, particular taste. In Venezuela, it is common mainly in Zulia State, where meat dishes are prepared with coconut milk. When prepared with shredded fish, it is given the name mojito and coco. Coconut milk is used to make majorette, a typical Venezuelan dessert, and also coconut rice, arroz con coco. In Southeast Asia, a wildly popular ice drink called Kendall is made where chilled coconut milk is added with green jellies made of rice flour and sweetened with liquid-thick palm sugar. Coconut milk is often used in traditional hot drinks such as Bandrek and Bajajur from West Java, Indonesia. In southern China and Taiwan, sweetened thin coconut milk is served on its own as a beverage during spring and summer. It is made by adding sugar and evaporated or fresh milk during the process of preparing the coconut milk. Another Chinese drink is coconut milk diluted with water, then mixed with fresh or evaporated milk in a one-to-one ratio, and a spoon of condensed milk or sugar for each cup. In Brazil, coconut milk is mixed with sugar and cachaca to make a cocktail called Petita de Coco. In Puerto Rico, the national beverage is the piña colada, which typically contains coconut milk or coconut cream. The official Puerto Rican Christmas time drink is coquito 
and eggnog like rum, and coconut milk paste, homemade beverage. In Riddle Island of the Solomon Islands, local homebrew is made by fermenting coconut milk, yeast, and sugar in a bin and leaving it hidden in the bush for about a week. This coconut rum is mentioned in the song Papa Joe by Sweet. A chocolate bar is a chocolate confection in bar form, which distinguishes it from bulk chocolate produced for commercial use or individually portioned chocolates, such as pastilles bonbons, and truffles. In most of the English-speaking world, chocolate bar also refers to a typically snack-sized bar coated with or substantially consisting of chocolate, but containing other ingredients. A chocolate bar made exclusively from chocolate contains some or all of the following components. solids, cocoa butter, sugar, and milk. The relative presence or absence of these define the subclasses of chocolate bar made of dark chocolate, milk chocolate, and white chocolate. In addition to these main ingredients, a chocolate bar may contain flavorings such as vanilla, and emulsifiers such as soy lecithin to alter its consistency. Chocolate bars containing other ingredients feature a wide variety of layerings or mixtures 
popular example is a Snickers bar, which consists of a nougat mixed with caramel and peanuts. Chocolate bars are often loosely called candy bars in American English, a term that encompasses similar treats produced without chocolate, such as the Zagnut and Bitto Honey bars. A wide selection of similar chocolate treats are produced with added sources of protein and vitamins. These include forms of energy bar and granola bar and are sold as snacks and nutritional supplements. Up to and including the 19th century, confectionery of all sorts was typically sold in small pieces to be bagged and bought up by weight. The introduction of chocolate as something that could be eaten as is, rather than used to make beverages or desserts, resulted in the earliest bar forms or tablets. At some point, chocolates came to mean any chocolate-covered sweets, whether nuts creams, caramel candies, or others. The chocolate bar evolved from all of these in the late 19th century as a way of packaging and selling candy more conveniently for both buyer and seller. However, the buyer had to pay for the packaging. It was considerably cheaper to buy candy loose or in bulk. In 1847, Joseph Fry found a way to mix the ingredients of cocoa powder, sugar, and cocoa to manufacture a paste that could then be molded into a chocolate bar proper for consumption. 
subsequently, his chocolate factory, known as the Fry's Chocolate Factory, located in Bristol, England, began mass-producing them, and they were very popular. The firm began producing the Fry's Chocolate Cream Bar in 1866. Over 220 products were introduced. This included production of the first chocolate Easter egg in the United Kingdom in 1873 and the fries Turkish Delight in 1914. The firm became a registered private company and was run by the Fry family, with Joseph Storrs Fry II, grandson of the first Joseph Storrs Fry, as chairman. chocolate bars had their beginnings in the 19th century. Their sales grew most rapidly in the early 20th century. In North America, Ganong Brothers Limited of St. Stephen, New Brunswick, developed and began selling their version of the modern chocolate bar in Canada by 1910. The Hershey Chocolate Company took the lead in the U.S., largest chocolate bar was produced as a stunt by Thornton's PLC in the United Kingdom on October 7th, 2011. The chocolate bar weighed over 5,000 kilograms or over 12,000 pounds and measured 4 meters by 4 meters by 0. Wikipedia article about 
is a type of chewing gum designed to freshen breath and to be inflated out of the mouth as a bubble. In 1928, Walter Dimer, an accountant for the Fleer Chewing Gum Company in Philadelphia, was experimenting with new gum recipes. One recipe was found to be less sticky than regular chewing gum and stretched more easily. This gum became highly successful and was eventually named by the president of Fleer as Double Bubble of its stretchy texture. The original bubblegum was pink in color because that was the only dye Dimer had on hand at the time. And it was his favorite color. such as chicle is used. It must pass several purity cleanliness tests. However, most modern types of chewing gum use synthetic gum-based materials. materials allow for longer lasting flavor, a better texture, and a reduction in tackiness. Chewing gum was widely popular from the mid century until a peak in 2009, after which sales began to decline. During the period between 2009 and 2013, sales of chewing gum fell 11%. Reasons for chewing gum's decline in popularity included alternative products for breath freshening, the perception of gum as a messy product, and less successful marketing efforts 
by chewing gum companies. Bubble gum is available in many colors and flavors. Although the exact ingredients were kept a mystery to customers, chemicals such as ethyl methylphenylglycidate, isoamylacetate, fruit extracts, and more. and extracts fuse to make a sweet, palatable flavor. Gums made with vanilla, coconut, peppermint, and almond extracts are available. Flavors include blue raspberry, lemon, strawberry, apple, cherry. cinnamon, banana, peppermint, cotton candy, and grape. Strawberry and banana can be achieved. Methylphenylglycidate and isoamylacetate limonene, respectively. Malic acid can be used for apple flavor. Allyl hexanoate for pineapple flavor. Ethyl propionate for fruit punch flavor. Cinnamic aldehyde for cinnamon flavor. And acetophenone for cherry flavor. More unusual flavors such as berry, cola, lemon-lime, peach, tropical fruit, 
also be found, as well as novelty tastes such as bacon or popcorn. Bubblegum itself is the flavor of Pepto-Bismol, or as others have found, cotton candy. In taste tests, children tend to prefer strawberry and blue raspberry flavors, rejecting more complex flavors as they say these make them want to swallow the gum rather than continue chewing. In 1996, Susan Montgomery Williams of Fresno, California set the Guinness World Record largest bubblegum bubble ever blown, which was 26 inches, or 66 centimeters, in diameter. Chad Fell holds the record largest hands-free bubblegum bubble at 20 inches or 51 centimeters achieved on April 24th, 2004. are select sections from the two Wikipedia articles titled Sensipalum Dulcificum and Miraculin. Here's the beginning of the first article. Sensipalum Dulcificum is a plant known for its berry that, when eaten, causes sour foods such as lemons and limes, subsequently consumed, to taste sweet. This effect is due to miraculin. Common names for this species and its berry include Miracle Fruit, Miracle Berry, Miraculous Berry, Sweet Berry, and in West Africa, where the species originates, Ekbayun, Dami, Asa, and Ladidi. The 
berry contains a glycoprotein molecule with some trailing carbohydrate chains called miraculin. When the fleshy part of the fruit is eaten, this molecule binds to the tongue's taste buds, causing sour foods to taste sweet. At neutral pH, miraculin binds and blocks the receptors. But at low pH, resulting from the ingestion of sour foods, miraculin binds proteins and becomes able to activate the sweet receptors, resulting in the perception of sweet taste. This effect lasts until the protein is washed away by saliva, which is up to about 30 minutes. The names Miracle Fruit and Miracle Berry are shared by Gymnema Silvestre and the Matococcus danielli, which are two other species of plant used to alter the perceived sweetness of foods. The next section is about the history of the plant. The berry has been used West Africa since at least the 18th century, when European explorer Chevalier de Marchais provided an account of its use there. Marchais, who was searching West Africa for many different fruits in a 1725 excursion, noticed that local people picked the berry from shrubs and chewed it before meals. In the 1970s, in the USA, an attempt was made to commercialize the fruit for its ability to turn unsweet foods into sweet foods without a caloric penalty. But this ended in failure when the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA, classified the berry as a food additive. There were controversial circumstances with accusations that the project was sabotaged and the research files stolen by the sugar industry to prevent loss of business caused by a drop in demand for sugar. However, the FDA has denied receiving any pressure from the sugar industry. Arguments similar to the ones used for this classification were used for the FDA's regulation on stevia 
now labeled as a dietary supplement instead of a sweetener. For a time in the 1970s, U.S. dieters could purchase a pill form of miraculin. This phenomenon has enjoyed such revival in food-tasting events referred to as flavor-dripping parties by some. The tasters consume sour and bitter foods such as lemons, radishes, pickles, hot sauce, and beer to experience the taste changes. The next section is about the characteristics and cultivation of the plant. It is a shrub that grows between 1.8 and 4.5 meters or 6 to 15 feet in height and has dense foliage. Its leaves are 5 to 10 centimeters long, 2 to 3.7 centimeters wide, and glabrous below. They are clustered at the ends of the branchlets. The flowers are white. It carries red, two centimeter long fruits, and each fruit contains one seed. The plant grows best in soils with a pH as low as 4.5 to 5.8 in an environment free from frost and in partial shade with high humidity. It is tolerant of drought, full sunshine, and slopes. The seeds need 14 to 21 days to germinate spacing of four meters between plants is suggested. The plants first bear fruit after growing for approximately three to four years and produce two crops per year after the end of the rainy season. This evergreen plant produces small red berries, while white flowers are produced for many months of the year. The seeds are about the size of coffee beans. In Africa, leaves are attacked by Lepidopterus larvae, and fruits are infested with larvae of fruit flies. The fungus Rigidoporus microporus has been found on the plant. Transgenic tomato plants have been developed in research projects that produce miraculin. 
next section is about the uses of the plant. In tropical West Africa, where this species originates, the fruit pulp is used to sweeten palm wine. Historically, it was also used to improve the flavor of soured cornbread. Attempts have been made to create a commercial sweetener from the fruit, with an idea of developing this for patients with diabetes. Fruit cultivators also report a small demand from cancer patients because their fruit allegedly counteracts a metallic taste in the mouth that may be one of the many side effects of chemotherapy. This claim has not been researched scientifically, though late in 2008, an oncologist at Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami, Florida, began a study, and by March 2009, had filed an investigation on a new drug application with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The berry is on the EU list of novel foods and requires a safety assessment before it can be sold as food or used as a food additive. In Japan, miracle fruit is popular among patients with diabetes and dieters. The shelf life of the fresh fruit is only two to three days. Because miraculin is denatured by heating, the pulp must be preserved without heating for commercial use. Freeze-dried pulp is available in granules or in tablets and has a shelf life of 10 to 18 months. The next sections are about miraculin, which is the active agent in the plant, which can cause the sweetness. Miraculin itself is not sweet. However, after the taste buds are exposed to miraculin, which binds to sweet receptors on the tongue, Acidic foods, which are ordinarily sour, such as citrus, are perceived as sweet. This effect lasts up to an hour. The active substance, isolated by Professor Kenzo Kuriara, a Japanese scientist, was named Miraculin after the miracle fruit when Curiara published his work in the journal Science. In 
1968. Miraculin was first sequenced in 1989 and found to be a glycoprotein consisting of 191 amino acids and some carbohydrate chains. Miraculin, like curculin, another taste-modifying agent, is not sweet by itself, but it can change the perception of a sour beverage into a sweet beverage, even for a long period after consumption. The anti-sweet compound, gymnemic acid, suppresses the sweet taste of miraculin like it does for sucrose. The duration and the intensity of the taste-modifying phenomena depends on various factors. Miraculin concentration, duration of contact of the miraculin with the tongue, and acid concentration, maximum sweet-induced responses have been shown to be equivalent to the sweetness of 17% sucrose solution. The glycoprotein is sensitive to heat. When heated over 100 degrees Celsius, miraculin loses its taste modifying property. Miraculin activity is inactivated at pH below 3 and at pH above 12 at room temperature. The sweet modifying effect stays at pH 4 in acetate buffer for 6 months at 5 degrees Celsius. The detailed mechanism of the taste-inducing behavior is still unknown. It has been suggested that the miraculin protein can change the structure of taste receptors on the cells of the tongue. As a result, the sweet receptors are activated by acids, which are sour in general. This effect remains until the taste buds return to normal. The two histidine residues appear to be mainly responsible for the taste-modifying behavior. One site maintains the attachment of the protein to the membranes while the other, with attached xylose or arabinose, activates the sweet receptor membrane in acid solutions. Further research is being conducted at the University of Tokyo using a system of cultured cells that allowed the testing of human taste receptors at various pH values to uncover the mechanism. As already known, 
miraculin binds strong to the sweet taste receptors on our tongues. However, it does not activate receptors at neutral pH. Once acid is introduced, the miraculin protein changes shape in such a way that it turns on the sweet receptors it is bound to, causing an ultra-sweet sensation without affecting other flavors tasted. Once the acidic food is swallowed, miraculin returns to its inactive shape until the next acidic food comes along. This can continue for about an hour while the miraculin protein is still bound to the taste receptor. As miraculin is a readily soluble protein and relatively heat-stable, it is a potential sweetener in acidic foods, for example, soft drinks. Japanese researchers' more or less successful attempts to mass-produce it are focused on recombinant technology. While attempts to express it in yeast and tobacco plants have failed, researchers have succeeded in preparing genetically modified E. coli bacteria, lettuce, and tomatoes that express miraculin. The scientists' crops resulted in 40 micrograms of miraculin per gram of lettuce leaves, which was considered a large amount. Two grams of lettuce leaves produced roughly the same amount of miraculin as in one miracle fruit berry. Miraculin was never approved for use as a sweetener by the United States Food and Drug Administration. In the 1970s, the Miralin Company planned on bringing Miraculin to market and was founded with investments by Reynolds Metals, Barclays, and Prudential. Legal advice and contact with the FDA indicated that Miraculin would be approved as generally recognized as safe as the berries had been eaten for centuries in Africa with no reports of adverse reactions. Substances used in food prior to January 1st, 1958 through either scientific procedures or through experience based on common use in food can be designated as generally recognized as safe. However, on the eve of the product's launch in 1974, the FDA determined that miraculin would be considered a food additive and thus require years of further testing. 
at that point, the company's investment capital could not sustain it, and the Maryland company folded. Afterward, Maryland requested the FDA documents under the Freedom of Information Act. The documents were nearly completely blacked out, and the rationale for the sudden change in regulation was not revealed. Miraculi has a novel food status in the European Union. However, it is approved in Japan as a harmless additive according to the list of existing food additives published by the Ministry of Health and Welfare. These articles conclude with two important limitations about Miraculi. Miraculin is a non-heat-stable protein subject to denaturation from heating, and thus miracle berries are not taste-bud active when cooked. While miraculin changes the perception of taste, it does not change the food's chemistry leaving the mouth and stomach vulnerable to the high acidity of some foods, such as lemon juice, that may cause irritation if eaten in large quantities. The following are select sections from the Wikipedia article titled Salt. I'll begin with the history of salt. All through history, the availability of salt has been pivotal to civilization. What is now thought to have been the first city in Europe is Solnitsada in Bulgaria, which was a salt mine providing the area now known as the Balkans with salt since 5,400 B.C. Even the name Solanitsada means salt works. While people have used canning and artificial refrigeration to preserve food for the last hundred years or so, salt has been the best-known food preservative especially for meat, for many thousands of years. Evidence indicates that Neolithic people of some cultures were boiling the salt-laden spring water through the process of bricotage to extract the salt as far back as 6050 BC. The salt extracted from this operation may have had a direct correlation to the rapid growth of this society's population soon after its initial production began. There is more salt in animal tissues, such as meat, blood, 
in milk than in plant tissues. Nomads who subsist on their flocks and herds don't eat salt with their food. But agriculturists feeding mainly on cereals and vegetable matter need to supplement their diet with salt. With the spread of civilization, salt became one of the world's main trading commodities. It was of high value to the ancient Hebrews, the Greeks, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Hittites, and other peoples of antiquity. In the Middle East, salt was used to ceremoniously seal an agreement and the ancient Hebrews made a covenant of salt with God and sprinkled salt on the offerings to show their trust in Him. An ancient practice in time of war was salting the earth, scattering salt around in a defeated city to prevent plant growth. Salt may have been used for barter, in connection with the obsidian trade in Anatolia in the Neolithic era. Salt was included among funeral offerings found in ancient Egyptian tombs from the 3rd millennium BC, as were salted birds and salt fish. From about 2800 BC, the Egyptians began exporting saltfish to the Phoenicians in return for Lebanon cedar, glass, and the dye Darien purple. The Phoenicians traded Egyptian salted fish and salt from North Africa throughout their Mediterranean trade empire. In the early years of the Roman Empire, roads were built for the transportation of salt from the salt imported at Ostia to the capital. In Africa, salt was used as currency south of the Sahara, and slabs of rock salt were used as coins in Abyssinia. Moorish merchants in the 6th century traded salt for gold, weight for weight, have traditionally maintained routes across the Sahara Desert, especially for the transportation of salt by salt caravans. The caravans still cross the desert from southern Niger to Bilma, although much of the trade now takes place by truck. Each camel takes two bales of fodder and two of trade goods northwards, and returns laden with salt pillars and dates. In Gabon, before the arrival of Europeans, the coast people carried on a payment system with those of the interior by the medium of sea salt. This was gradually displaced by the salt that Europeans brought in sacks. 
so that the coast natives lost their previous province. As of the author's writing in 1958, sea salt was still the currency best appreciated in the interior. The word salary comes from the Latin word for salt. The reason for this is unknown. A persistent modern claim is that the Roman legions were sometimes paid in salt, but that's considered baseless. The word salad literally means salted and comes from the ancient Roman practice of salting leaf vegetables. Wars have been fought over salt. Venice fought and won a war with Genoa over the product, and it played an important part in the American Revolution. Cities on overland trade routes grew rich by levying duties, and towns like Liverpool flourished on the export of salt extracted from the salt mines of Cheshire. Various governments have at different times imposed salt taxes on their peoples. The voyages of Christopher Columbus are said to have been financed from salt production in southern Spain, and the oppressive salt tax in France was one of the causes of the French Revolution. After being repealed, this tax was reimposed by Napoleon when he became emperor to pay for his foreign wars and was not finally abolished until 1945. In 1930, Mahatma Gandhi led at least 100,000 people on the Salt March, in which protesters made their own salt from the sea, thus defying British rule and avoiding paying the salt tax. This civil disobedience inspired millions of common people and elevated the Indian independence movement from an elitist movement to a national struggle. next section is about the chemistry and properties of salt. Salt is mostly sodium chloride, the ionic compound with the formula NaCl, representing equal proportions of sodium and chloride. Sea salt and freshly mined salt, much of which is sea salt, from prehistoric seas also contain small amounts of trace elements, which in these small amounts are generally good for plant and animal health. Mine salt is often refined in the production of table salt. It is dissolved in water, purified by precipitation of other minerals out of solution, and then re-evaporated. Salt crystals are translucent and cubic in shape. They normally appear white, but impurities may give them a blue or purple tinge. 
fat is essential to the health of humans and other animals, and it is one of the five basic taste sensations. Table salt is a refined salt containing about 97 to 99% sodium chloride. Usually, anti-caking agents such as sodium aluminosilicate or magnesium carbonate are added to make it free-flowing. Iodized salt containing potassium iodide is widely available. Some people put a desiccant, such as a few grains of uncooked rice or a saltine cracker, in their salt shakers to absorb extra moisture and help break up salt clumps that may otherwise form. Some table salt sold for consumption contains additives which address a variety of health concerns especially in the developing world. The identities and amounts of additives vary widely from country to country. Iodine is an important micronutrient for humans, and a deficiency of this element can cause lower production of thyroxine, and therefore hypothyroidism, an enlargement of the thyroid gland called endemic goiter in adults, or cretinism in children. Iodized salt has been used to correct these conditions since 1924 and consists of table salt mixed with a small amount of potassium iodide, sodium iodide, or sodium iodate. Iodine deficiency affects about 2 billion people around the world and is the leading preventable cause of severe mental dysfunction. In doubly fortified salt, both iodide and iron salts are added. The iron salts alleviate iron deficiency anemia, which interferes with the mental development of an estimated 40% of infants in the developing world. Another additive, especially important for pregnant women, is folic acid, also known as vitamin B9, which gives the table salt a yellow color. Folic acid helps prevent neural tube defects and anemia, which affect young mothers especially in developing countries. A lack of fluorine in the diet is the cause of a greatly increased incidence of dental caries, or also known as dental cavities. Fluoride salts can be added to table salt with the goal of reducing tooth decay, especially in countries that have not benefited from fluoridated toothpastes, and fluoridated water. The practice is more common in some European countries where water fluoridation is not carried out. In France, 35% of the table salt sold 
contains added sodium fluoride. Unrefined sea salt contains small amounts of magnesium and calcium halides and sulfates. Traces of algal products, salt-resistant bacteria, and sediment particles. The calcium and magnesium salts confer a faintly bitter overtone. Algal products contribute a mild fishy or sea air odor. The latter from organobromine compounds. Sediments the proportion of which varies with the source, give the salt a dull gray appearance. Since taste and aroma compounds are often detectable by humans in small concentrations, sea salt may have a more complex flavor than pure sodium chloride when sprinkled on top of food. When salt is added during cooking, however, these flavors would likely be overwhelmed by those of the food ingredients. The refined salt industry cites scientific studies saying that raw sea salts and rock salts don't contain enough iodine salts to prevent iodine deficiency diseases. Himalayan salt is known for its distinct pink hue. It is mined from the Salt Range Mountains in Pakistan. It is used in cooking as a substitute for table salt. It is also used as cookware, in salt lamps, and in spas. Kosher, or kitchen salt, has a larger grain size than table salt and is used in cooking. It can be useful for brining, bread or pretzel making, and as a scrubbing agent when combined with oil. The next section is about salt in food and health aspects of salt. Before the advent of electrically powered refrigeration, Salting was one of the main methods of food preservation. Thus, herring naturally contains 67 milligrams of sodium per 100 grams of weight, while kipper, in its preserved form, contains 15 times more sodium. In a similar manner, naturally contains 63 milligrams of sodium per 100 grams, but bacon contains 23 times more sodium. The main sources of salt in the Western diet, apart from direct use of sodium chloride, are bread and cereal products, meat products, and milk and dairy products. In many East Asian cultures, salt is not traditionally used as a condiment. In its place, condiments such as soy sauce, fish sauce, and oyster sauce 
tend to have a high sodium content and fill a similar role to table salt in Western cultures. They are most often used for cooking rather than as table condiments. Sodium serves a vital purpose in the human body by its role as an electrolyte. It helps nerves and muscles to function correctly, and it is one factor involved in the osmotic regulation of water content in body organs. Most of the sodium in the Western diet comes from salt. The habitual salt intake in many Western countries is about 10 grams per day and is higher than that in many countries in Eastern Europe and Asia. The high level of sodium in many processed foods has a major impact on the total amount consumed. In the United States, 75% of the sodium eaten comes from processed and restaurant foods, 11% from cooking and table use, and the rest from what is found naturally in foodstuffs. Because consuming too much sodium increases risk of cardiovascular diseases, health organizations generally recommend that people reduce their dietary intake of salt. High sodium intake is associated with a greater risk of stroke, total cardiovascular disease, and kidney disease. A reduction in sodium intake by 1,000 milligrams per day may reduce cardiovascular disease by about 30%. In adults and children with no acute illness, a decrease in the intake of sodium from the typical high levels reduces blood pressure. A low-sodium diet results in a greater improvement in blood pressure in people with hypertension. The World Health Organization recommends that adults should consume less than 2,000 milligrams of sodium, which is contained in 5 grams of salt per day. Guidelines by the United States recommend that people with hypertension, African Americans, and middle-aged and older adults should limit consumption to no more than 1,500 milligrams of sodium per day. One review indicated that there is inconsistent or insufficient evidence to conclude that reducing sodium intake to lower than 2,300 milligrams per day is either beneficial or harmful. The next section is about the non-dietary uses of salt. Only about 6% of the salt manufactured in the world is used in food. Of the remainder, 12% is used in water conditioning processes 8% goes for de-icing highways, 
and 6% is used in agriculture. The rest, which is 68%, is used for manufacturing and other industrial processes, and sodium chloride is one of the largest inorganic raw materials used by volume. Its major chemical products are caustic soda and chlorine, which are separated by the electrolysis of a pure brine solution. These are used in the manufacture of PVC, plastics, paper pulp, and many other inorganic and organic compounds. Salt is also used as a flux in the production of aluminum. For this purpose, a layer of melted salt floats on top of the molten metal and removes iron and other metal contaminants. Salt is also used in the manufacture of soaps and glycerin, where it is added to the fat to precipitate out the saponified products. As an emulsifier, salt is also used in the manufacture of synthetic rubber, and another use is in the firing of pottery when salt is added to the furnace, which vaporizes before condensing onto the surface of the ceramic material, forming a strong glaze. When drilling through loose materials, such as sand or gravel, salt may be added to the drilling fluid to provide a stable wall to prevent the hole from collapsing. There are many other processes in which salt is involved. These include its use as a mordant in textile dyeing to regenerate resins and water softening for the tanning of hides, the preservation of meat and fish, and of course, the canning of meat and vegetables. The last section is about the production of salt. Food-grade salt accounts for only a small part of salt production in industrialized countries, such as 7% in Europe. Although worldwide, food use accounts for 17.5% of total production. In 2013, total world production of salt was 264 million tons and the top five producers of salt were China, the United States, India, Germany, and Canada. The manufacture of salt is one of the oldest chemical industries. A major source of salt is seawater, which has a salinity of about 3.5%. World's oceans are a virtually inexhaustible source of salt, and this abundance of supply means their reserves have not been calculated. The evaporation of seawater is the production method of choice in marine countries with high evaporation and low precipitation rates. 
self-evaporation ponds are filled from the ocean, and silk crystals can be harvested as the water dries up. Sometimes these ponds have vivid colors, as some species of algae and other microorganisms thrive in conditions of high salinity. Elsewhere, salt is extracted from the vast sedimentary deposits which have been laid down over the millennia from the evaporation of seas and lakes. These are either mined directly, producing rock salt, or are extracted in solution by pumping water into the deposit. In either case, the salt may be purified by mechanical evaporation of brine. Traditionally, this was done in shallow open pans, which were heated to increase the rate of evaporation. More recently, the process is performed in pans under vacuum. The raw salt is refined to purify it and improve its storage and handling characteristics. This usually involves recrystallization, during which a brine solution is treated with chemicals that precipitate most impurities, which are largely magnesium and calcium salts. Multiple stages of evaporation are then used to collect pure sodium chloride crystals, which are kiln-dried. One of the largest salt mining operations in the world is in Pakistan. The mine has 19 stories, 11 of which are underground, and 400 kilometers, or 250 miles, of passages. The following are select sections from the Wikipedia article titled, New Coke. Here's a summary. New Coke was the unofficial name for the reformulation of Coca-Cola introduced in April 1985 by the Coca-Cola Company to replace the original formula of its flagship soft drink, Coca-Cola, or By 1985, Coca-Cola had been losing market share to diet soft drinks and non-cola beverages for many years. Consumers who were purchasing regular colas seemed to prefer the sweeter taste of the rival Pepsi-Cola as Coca-Cola learned conducting blind taste tests. However, the American public's reaction to the eventual change to the taste of Coca-Cola was negative, even hostile, and the new Coke was considered a major failure. The company reintroduced Coke's original formula within three months of new Coke's debut rebranded as Coca-Cola Classic 
and this resulted in a significant gain in sales. This led to speculation by some that the introduction of the new Coke formula was just a marketing ploy to stimulate sales of original Coca-Cola. However, the company has maintained that it was a genuine attempt to replace the original product. Coke 2 was discontinued in July 2002. It remains influential as a cautionary tale against tampering with a well-established and successful brand. The next section goes into the details about the problem of diminishing sales of Coke and the development of this potential solution of new Coke. After World War II, the market share for Coca-Cola was 60%. By 1983, it had declined to under 24%, largely because of competition from Pepsi-Cola. Market analysts believed baby boomers were more likely to purchase diet drinks as they aged and remain health and weight conscious. Growth in the full calorie segment would have to come from younger drinkers, who at the time favored Pepsi by even more overwhelming margins than the market as a whole. Coca-Cola's senior executives commissioned a secret project to create a new flavor for Coke. The sweeter cola overwhelmingly beat both regular Coke and Pepsi in taste tests, surveys, and focus groups. Asked if they would buy and drink the product if it were Coca-Cola. Most testers said they would, although it would take some getting used to. About 10 to 12 percent of testers felt angry and alienated at the thought and said they might stop drinking Coke altogether. Their presence in focus groups tended to negatively skew results as they exerted indirect peer pressure on other participants. The surveys which were given more significance by standard marketing procedures of the era, were less negative than the taste tests and were key in convincing management to change the formula in 1985 to coincide with the drink's centenary. But the focus groups had provided a clue as to how the change would play out in a public context a data point the company downplayed, but which proved important later. Management rejected an idea to make and sell the new flavor as a separate variety of Coca-Cola. A new variety of Coke in competition with the main variety could also have cannibalized 
sales and increase the proportion of Pepsi drinkers relative to Coke drinkers. It was decided that the containers carry the word new on the label, which gave the drink its popular name of New Coke. New Coke was introduced on April 23rd 1985, production of the original formulation ended later that week. In many areas, new Coke was initially introduced in old Coke packaging. Bottlers used up remaining cans, cartons, and labels before new packaging was widely available. and plastic bottles had red caps instead of silver and white, respectively. The next section is about the initial acceptance and then the subsequent acceptance of New Coke. As soon as New Coke was introduced, the new formula was available at McDonald's and other drink fountains in the United States. Sales figures from those cities and other areas where it had been introduced showed a reaction that went as the market research had predicted. In fact, Coke sales were up 8% over the same period as the year before. Most Coke drinkers resumed buying the new Coke at much the same level as they had the old one. Surveys indicated that the majority of regular Coke drinkers liked the new flavoring. Three quarters of the respondents said they would buy new Coke again. Despite new Coke's acceptance, with a large number of Coca-Cola drinkers. Many more resented the change in formula and were not shy about making that known, just as had happened in the focus groups. Many of these drinkers were Southerners, some of whom considered Coca-Cola a fundamental part of their regional identity. Company headquarters in Atlanta began receiving letters and telephone calls expressing anger or deep disappointment. The company received over 40,000 calls and letters, including one letter that was addressed to, quote, Chief Dodo, the Coca-Cola company, end quote. received over 1,500 calls a day, compared to about 400 before the change. A psychiatrist whom Coke had hired to listen in on calls told executives that some people sounded 
as if they were discussing the death of a family member. Comedians and talk show hosts, including Johnny Carson and David Letterman, made regular jokes mocking the switch. Ads for New Coke were booed heavily when they appeared on the scoreboard at the Houston Astrodome. Even Fidel Castro, a longtime Coca-Cola drinker, contributed to the backlash, calling New Coke a sign of American capitalist decadence. Executives met with international Coke bottlers in Monaco. The bottlers were not interested in selling New Coke. Even amidst consumer anger and several Pepsi ads mocking Coca-Cola's debacle, Pepsi actually gained very few long-term converts over Coke Switch. Coca-Cola's director of corporate communications realized over time that consumers were more upset about the withdrawal of the old formula than the taste of the new one. Some Coca-Cola executives had quietly been arguing for a reintroduction of the old formula as early as May. By mid-June, when soft drink sales usually start to rise, the numbers showed that New Coke was leveling among consumers. Executives feared social peer pressure was now affecting their bottom line. Some consumers even began trying to obtain old Coke from overseas, where the new formula had not yet been introduced. Over the course of the month, Coca-Cola's chemists also quietly reduced the acidity level of the new formula. They were hoping to reduce complaints about the flavor and allow its sweetness to be better perceived. In addition to the noisier public protests, boycotts, and bottles being emptied into the streets of several cities, the company had more serious reasons to be concerned. Its bottlers were expressing serious concern. Most of them saw great difficulty having to promote and sell a drink that had long been marketed as the real thing, constant and unchanging, now that it had been changed. On June 23rd, several of the bottlers took these complaints to Coca-Cola executives in a private meeting. With the company now fearing boycotts, not only from its consumers, but its bottlers, Talks about reintroducing the old formula moved from if to when. Finally, the Coca-Cola board decided that enough was enough and plans were set in motion to bring back the old Coke. The next section 
is about the return of the original Coke. Coca-Cola executives announced the return of the original formula during the afternoon of July 11th, 78 days after New Coke's introduction. ABC News, Peter Jennings, interrupted General Hospital with a special bulletin to share the news with viewers. On the floor of the U.S. Senate, David Pryor called the reintroduction, quote, a meaningful moment in U.S. history, end quote. The new product continued to be sold and retained the name Coca-Cola until 1992 when it was renamed Coke II. The original formula was renamed Coca-Cola Classic and for a short time it was referred to by the public as Old Coke. Some who tasted the reintroduced formula were not convinced that the first batches really were the same formula they had supposedly been retired that spring. This was not true for all regions, but it was actually true for a few regions because some were using high fructose corn syrup instead of cane sugar to sweeten the reintroduced Coca-Cola Classic. By the end of 1985, Coca-Cola Classic was substantially outselling both New Coke and Pepsi. Six months after the rollout, Coke sales had increased at more than twice the rate of Pepsi's. New Coke sales dwindled to a 3% share of the market. Later research, however, suggested that it was not the return of Coca-Cola Classic, but instead the nearly unnoticed introduction of Jerry Coke. This new Coke flavor appeared almost simultaneously with new Coke and can be credited with the company's success in 1985. The Coca-Cola Company spent a considerable amount of time trying to figure out where it had made a mistake. It ultimately concluded that it had underestimated the public reaction of the portion of the customer base that would be alienated by the switch. Bottles and cans continued to bear the Coca-Cola Classic title until January 2009, when the company announced it would stop printing the word classic on the labels of some of the products. No one at Coca-Cola was fired or otherwise held responsible for what is still widely perceived as a misstep for the simple reason that it ultimately wasn't. In 1997, the company's share price was well above 16 years earlier, 
and its position as a market leader was even more firmly established. In the short run, the reintroduction of original Coca-Cola saved Coke's sales figures and brought it back in the good graces of many customers and bottlers. Phone calls and letters to the company were as joyful and thankful as they had been angry and depressed. McDonald's announced shortly after the reintroduction of Coca-Cola Classic that it was immediately switching from New Coke back to original Coca-Cola at all of its restaurants. New Coke had the spotlight for only three months in 1985, but it casts a long shadow in both the business world and popular culture that can still be seen. It is most frequently mentioned as a cautionary tale among businesses against tampering too extensively with a well-established and successful brand. The next section is about the problems with taste tests. Malcolm Gladwell relates his conversations with market researchers in the food industry who put most of the blame for the failure of New Coke on the flawed nature of taste tests. They claim most are subject to systematic biases. Tests such as the Pepsi Challenge were sip tests, meaning that drinkers were given small samples, less than a can or bottle's worth, to try. Gladwell condemns that what people say they like in these tests may not reflect what they actually buy to drink at home over several days. Carol Dollard, who once worked in product development for Pepsi, told Gladwell, quote, I've seen many times where the SIP test will give you one result, and the home use test will give you the exact opposite, end quote. For example, although many consumers react positively to the sweeter taste of Pepsi, in small volumes, it may become unattractively sweet when drunk in large quantities. Coke, on the other hand, may be more attractive for drinking in large volumes because it is less sweet. A more comprehensive testing regimen could possibly have revealed this, Gladwell sources believe. Coke considered but rejected gradually changing the drink's flavor incrementally without announcing they were doing so. Executives feared the public would notice and exaggerate slight differences in taste. In 1998, a professor of food marketing tested this flavor balance hypothesis and argued that it wasn't true. And a fellow researcher tested mixtures of Coca-Cola Classic 
and Coke too, and found that the gradual changes of taste were not noticed by a significant number of tasters. Coke, he said, would have succeeded had it chosen this strategy. The last section will be about three conspiracy theories related to New Coke. The Coca-Cola Company's apparently sudden reversal on New Coke led to several rumors and conspiracy theories. These theories have circulated in the years since to explain how a company with the resources and experience of Coca-Cola could have made such an obvious and colossal blunder. Conspiracy Theory Number One The company intentionally changed the formula, hoping consumers would be upset with the company and demand the original formula to return, which in turn would cause sales to spike. Someone from the company answered this speculation by saying, quote, We're not that dumb, and we're not that smart. End quote. Conspiracy theory number two. The putative switch was planned all along to cover the change from sugar-sweetened Coke to much less expensive high-fructose corn syrup. This theory was supposedly given credence by the apparently different taste of Coke Classic when it first hit the market. The U.S. Sugar Trade Association took out a full-page ad criticizing Coke for using high-fructose corn syrup in all bottling of the old formula when it was reintroduced. In fact, Coca-Cola began allowing bottlers to remove up to half of the product's cane sugar as early as 1980, five years before the introduction of new Coke. By the time the new formula was introduced, most bottlers had already sweetened Coca-Cola entirely with high fructose corn syrup. Conspiracy theory number three. It provided a cover for the final removal of all Coca derivatives from the product to placate the Drug Enforcement Administration because the coca plant is also the source of cocaine. It is true that Coke's executives were indeed relieved the new formula contained no coca. It is also true that they were concerned about the long-term future of coca fields that supplied it in the face of increasing DEA pressure to end cultivation of the coca crop. However, there was no direct pressure from the DEA on Coca-Cola to do so. This theory was endorsed in a Time Magazine article, as well as by a historian, who claims the reformulation 
was made in response to the escalating war on drugs by the Reagan administration. So why did Coca-Cola initially take all Coke off the market and introduce new Coke? The truth is out there somewhere. This concludes the Whisperpedia episode. I hope you are deeply relaxed, or even better.